Everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. Apologies for the long holiday season break. We were busy. We were away on a high at our high altitude training camps, getting tuned up for for this coming season. As always, I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew sent me over a list of uh, grab bag topics that we're going to get into to kick off the 2024 season. Check in on cyclocross. Ask what's going on with Wow Matthew Vanderpool. Why is Vanderpool so fit? Tom Pickcock, Enios, Manchester United, what's going on there? But Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get going? Yeah, I noticed you skipped a few of the more controversial bullet points in the list. Thank you for doing that. Oh, we'll that. get to them. Yeah, thank you for doing that, Spencer. Also, I just wanted to say before we get started that this uh, this podcast is brought to you by one ton of maltodextrin. That's what Spencer and I have consumed during the past week. If you haven't been following along on social media this week, we have completed a virtual Everest over the course of a week, which is a more sensible way to do it. If you'd like to join us in doing that in the future, just drop us a line. You can reach me at Hardway Pod on Instagram is the best way to get in touch. We're organizing some some fun activities like that for listeners, friends, fans, and we hope to see you out there at the gravel races this season. Uh, you can find my podcast, Choose the Hard Way, which is a show about how hard things build stronger humans who have more fun with a focus on cycling. I've got Michael Marks, the founder of the Belgian Waffle Ride and an incredibly interesting human being and professional musician, it turns out as well, joining me on my podcast, Dropping Next Week. You can find Choose the Hard Way everywhere you listen at choosethehardway.com and at Hardway Pod on social. And before we dive in, I also you know, wanted to give anyone out there in the bike industry an opportunity to get involved this season because I have not secured my bike sponsor for 2024 gravel season yet. I am accepting applications. If you, uh, if you are at a company that has an outstanding gravel bike, I'd be happy to take your bike into consideration as my primary ride heading into the 2024 gravel season. And uh, my push towards the world tour. <laughs> get get Andrew a bike. Let's get him on Yumbo. Uh, all right, I guess Viesman now. They just filled their, did you hear about this? They just filled their last roster spot. I think it's like with a 35-year-old who was racing Kermesses solo, like a true privateer last year. And they just like picked this guy up. I mean, talk about that. This is not far off your story, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, wait until they see the numbers from my week-long virtual Everest. We we joke about this, and I kind of created this. You know, I have a, it's on Strava. Andrew and I created our own separate versions of this. This is the type of coordination we have going on here at Beyond the Peloton. But it's kind of jokey, but it is very hard. It's much harder than you think it is. It really puts into perspective how hard and I would say insane Everesting in a single day is. I really can't believe people do it. Just generally, people ride so long distances and times now compared to maybe even 10 years ago it blows my mind but it is a really good way to build fitness i find in 20 right when covid was happening at the beginning of what year was that 2020 they i didn't have a lot going on my my business kind of fell apart i uh, didn't have a kid yet so i was doing some writing i decided i'll oh, just everest in a week and it was i rested the week after that did i did this outside and then I was probably some, some of the fastest climbing fitness I've ever been in the rest of that summer. I attribute it to, you know, the type of kind of pace you settle into when you're trying to Everest as, as quickly as you, you know, you can only do it so fast. If you're going really fast outside, you end up doing it in like 14 hours inside. I found it's a little faster, like maybe nine to 12 would be, I mean, nine would be really fast, obviously. Right. But like 12 hours, 11 hours is maybe what you could do it in, but you end up riding at a pretty high intensity. You can't really be at threshold because you would get so tired. You couldn't do it, but it is a good challenge. And I've found it to be much harder than I thought it would be. Yeah. And we did a few other challenges leading up to this challenge. First, we had the abandon your family 500 K <laughs> a week. Then I bolted on the following week. I did the abandon your family 500 plus Zwift race per day as part of that 500 K. I don't remember if you did that one or not, Spencer. And now we have the Everest in a week. So this is the optimal time to get in early. If you are that premium bike sponsor looking to get some top tier podcast writers for 2024, showing up at a select number of events, we'd also take free entries as well. 
Yeah, especially Belgium awful ride. Now we have the uh, we've got a line to them that could be interesting. I do kind of wonder doing these challenges. We're doing it with uh, a collection of people. Jonathan Kaplan, loyal, loyal listener, more more loyal than he should be. He listens us to us too often, potentially consuming too much of our content for his uh, for his sanity. But we've been doing these challenges with them. It kind of made me think. I, I mean, we sh- we should like this is not a binding contract, but it would be kind of fun if we did an in person like you were talking about wanting to go to Tucson for some sort of retreat slash training camp. Like if we invited, you know, four or five elite beyond the Peloton listeners, and it was kind of an event slash training camp thought leader gather gathering. Like that could be kind of a fun fun thing to add to the podcast. Yeah, it would be fun. And it's been awesome to see some past choose the hard way guests get in the mix with the challenge this week. We, of course, have uh, cycling media YouTube superstar Ben Delaney is in the mix. So shout out to Ben for getting after it. I think he's been doing most of it outside. So I, I don't know what he's thinking, wanting to be able to see something besides his Zwift screen, but good for yeah, you, Ben. What is his problem, yeah. man? Come on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And then we also have... Um, Ben Davis, who uh, is a, an up-and-coming fiction and nonfiction writer, former Navy SEAL, and uh, director of the Veterans Outdoor Advocacy Group, has been in the mix as well. Ben did take a break yesterday, but uh, we'll see if, if he comes through and gets things done here in the uh, 11th hour before the finale tomorrow. And just before we get into your topics, you mentioned the gravel bike. I didn't mention this in the in the multiple podcasts we did about the Belgium awful ride, but you you asked why do I have mechanical shifting? The answer was cost. But right. another component is I really wanted the SRAM wireless because that's like really appealing to me. You just pop it on. There's no wires to connect. Sure. You screw it on. Screw on the derailleurs. Put the shifters on. You're ready to go. Thing about SRAM though, it's only one buy. And I have a bit of a phobia of one by, I have it on my mountain bike, obviously like a normal person, but, and I know technically it's supposed to be like the same amount of gearing. You're not really supposed to be spinning out. Did you think that race we did the Belgium off ride, Kansas, could you have done as well with one by, I don't think I could have. Well, I know Ben Delaney prefers having a two by an actual gravel race situations. He talks about that all the time on his YouTube channel. And I've also talked to him about it privately. Just self disclose out here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, I think at BWR Kansas, our race had, I think, uh, about 6,000 feet of climbing. It was rolling terrain. There were some pretty steep pitches and there were some big, just like ripping tailwind sections where, you know, flat to false flat slightly downhill we were definitely pushing more than 30 miles an hour so like i felt like i barely had sufficient gearing i think my uh hardest gear was the 4611 so i don't know somebody who knows how to do gear math better than me can probably tell me why a one by would be totally fine but i really felt like a two by was the appropriate gearing to have in that event. I mean, I think it's a question of in the downhilling that you're doing or on flat ground at your races, are you going to be able to actually push a big gear or are you just, uh, are you just coasting? Yeah. I, I, I wanted a two by, and as far as I know, I think Shram's gravel group sets are all one by. No, they, uh, they, they do make, they do have some two by gravel group sets. SRAM, of course, not known to have the best front shifting. So I think yeah, that, that that's that's potentially why you see all their sponsored riders on a on a one by because I know that okay, they make a yeah, two yeah. by for the force group set and yeah. But I I think the bigger question with the one by versus two by on the gravel bike, I really do think that there are a number of gravel bikes now that you could fully, unless you're a very serious committed road racer, and I think that. There are probably less than 20 of those left in the United States. Um, I'm not, you know, I think that just having one bike is probably sufficient for almost everyone. Sorry, bike industry, just the old two wheel sets, one bike. And, you know, trying to find the right set of characteristics where you can have a big enough double chain ring, big ring on there so that you could actually go ride it on the road. That's what I think about more so than would it work in a race? Like, would it work if I wanted to go out? and do some fast road rides or, you know, group rides with up to three other people here in the mid coast main area. 
Yeah, if I want to do the bus stop ride on my gravel bike, you know, maybe I would put a 50 on there on the front. And I think that would be enough. Really, yeah, sorry, bike industry. I think I could just have my gravel bike with two sets of wheels. You know, if you're trying to be at the front at Tulsa Tough, I did I did have noticed in big, big crits, you're just going so fast. You could be going 34, 35 miles an hour at cruising speed. And you maybe want to be a little bit lower, a little bit more aero front end. That could help. But unless you're doing that, I don't know. I, I disagree with a lot of people who are like, I just feel so slow. I, I can't even be on aluminum rims anymore because I'm rolling so slow. It's like, I don't know, maybe you just get a little bit lower on the bike and, you, and and you'll be fine there. But just to get into our topics, Andrew, your first one, Let's I've been this. thinking about, about this one a lot. Cyclocross, yeah. Matthew Vanderpool's dominance in cyclocross. Uh, for anyone who's not religiously watching the season, he has raced, I believe it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten races won 10 races, not even really been close. I've been looking back to the records, like the great riders like Sven Nies, Wout Van Aert in his prime, in his cyclocross prime. I've never found anyone that just shows up batting a thousand, and he's only racing the biggest cross races in the world. This is really impressive. The fitness, to put it simply, he's winning because he's a better bike handler than everyone else, and he's also better at pedaling through mud and sand than everyone else, and he's faster than everyone else. So those are three important things that contribute to his just absolute dominance. What are your thoughts on this? Is this a good idea? I cannot stop wondering, why is he this fit right now? I mean, did this, this kid get his hands on some worm blood? in the off season like what's <laughs> like what's yeah in case you haven't heard about the worm blood study there's there's a study out that you could possibly uh use worm blood as a doping product to increase the hematocrit don't go down and secure a bucket of red wigglers from your local bait shop uh it's questionable how you could actually implement this strategy but there's some science around it yeah um you know when i've heard him talk about what he's doing that's new and different with his training. It sounds like he's he's doing weight training for really the first time in his career in a highly organized way. He is I don't know, it's just it's just wild to see someone improve this much and be this dominant over his competitors. I also think that part of what we're seeing is I mean, we have these as separate bullet points, but I think Vanderpool I don't think he uh, is necessarily going to have the road season that he would like to have. I can't imagine being at this level and well, yeah, the right. And like conservation <laughs> of energy would suggest yeah. that he's going to have a very bad road season. Yeah, definitely. So I, I kind of think that we're. Um, I know that we've been messaging about this, but to me, I feel like there's been this. Um, we've gone in a circle. Life is life is a circle. Everything in life is a circle, and. I feel like we've gone from cycling 1.0 to cycling 2.0 with the rise of the Galacticos. And I feel like we're kind of heading back in the direction of cycling 1.0, where you're not going to have these riders who just show up and can win everything in every discipline all year long. You can't do that for infinity. And then also other teams make adjustments to their training, to their strategy, to their roster to combat that. And then you're kind of back where you're, you started. And I think we're starting to see that specifically as it pertains to cyclocross. I think Vanderpool is at this extremely high level. And I think part of why there's this massive delta between him and the other Galacticos who are in the race, which would be Wout and Pidcock, is because Wout and Pidcock are focusing on being GC riders this year. And we know that Wout has said he's not riding for the GC at the Giro. I don't believe that. I think he's going there to win the race. And Pidcock has stated he wants to be a GC rider and wants to try to win the Tour de France. Therefore, I think they're just training in a more sensible manner to be in shape when they actually need to be in shape to make the most money and to maximize their earning potential, which is at the Grand Tours. What do you think? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, top line, yes. If we just unpack this, the, the, the idea that these Galacticos would show up and win everything at any time is unsustainable that really made so, no sense it was driven by three people Vanderpool, van art and pickcock i believe van art and pickcock 
have kind of learned their lessons. I mean, they've been burned. If you, we haven't seen anyone as dominant as Vanderpool in cyclocross as Wout Van Aert was last year. If you remember his run leading up to the, he started to fade at the end of January, lost world championships. He was dominant before that. Like he was beating Vanderpool by a minute, you know, in some of these races. He went on to have the worst road season of his career, basically. He had a bad year last year. I would guess that he thought, you know what? That's not super sustainable. And you know who Tom, Tom Pickcock, very talented rider, has been popping off some pretty good results. Like he got second at Amstel, or sorry, third at Amstel, second at Liège. Really good last year. Has not been progressing, I would say, as he should have. As someone you would think with his level of talent and his age, which is now 24 years old. I think him and Van Aert have just, this is not sustainable. We can't race cyclocross at this level and race full seasons and be the riders we want to be on the road. I would quibble with you. I don't think Pickcock is, is going for GC at the Tour maybe this year. I mean, maybe, but I don't know if he's going to be that successful. Probably winning some stages and then showing up the Olympic Games and being fit there is, is important to him and the Spring Classics. So not, being, not peaking right now is, is a good idea for him. I don't understand this Vanderpool thing. And Vanderpool, what what has his been his biggest problem in the last two years? It's been two things. It's he gets very fatigued. See Tour de France this year when he could barely ride his bike, and he has a back injury relating to someone on the team or a doctor said it's an overuse injury. So if you have an overuse back injury, why are you stretching your schedule so much? And he wants to do the Spring Classics. And he might do the tour and he might even do the mountain bike and road race at the Olympics. If he does the mountain bike race, he will skip the tour, which makes sense. But that's a big schedule. I just don't quite understand what the thought process is there with, with that team. Well, he's lifting weights now. He's lifting weights. So he's good. And that's good for your back. I mean, who hasn't started lifting heavy weights and their back just feels amazing all the time. The, the heavy weight this is a big trend recently. I understand it for mountain biking and for cyclocross. I don't believe that weight training is necessarily that good if you're trying to be a top. I mean, obviously some weight training is good in the off season, you know, at correct weights is good. I feel like some people like, let's just say Kate Courtney, maybe lose sight of the fact that they're not professional weightlifters and that the weightlifting should be a complement to their cycling. And that it's almost like this meathead mentality that seeped into endurance sports. And some of these riders are, I feel like, lifting way too much. And it's compromising their ability to do their main function, which is ride a bike and be as light as possible. The number one thing these riders need to do with their weightlifting is risk management. And I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I just think if you're putting people who don't have a long history with strength training with heavy weights into a scenario where that becomes a regular part of their routine. And I, I'm sure that they're bringing in people who are highly expert at strength and conditioning to work with these athletes, hopefully. But, you know, you start throwing around heavy weights, you've never done it before, you don't have a long training history. It's just extremely easy to get injured and it happens all the time. And to carry those gains in, and to sustain them throughout the season, you actually need to continue to lift heavy weights at least once a week. Yeah, you can fact, you can fact you check that. that. I, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Like that's what you, <laughs> it's what you actually have to do. I mean, I can tell you, Spencer, when uh, when I was working at TRX, I remember the I guess it was Radio Shack at the time, and I think Alan Lim was the head of human performance or whatever they were calling the function at that time but yeah he came in and we worked with him and levi and all the other riders who were on the team that season this is something that these teams have been trying to do for you know more than a decade now i think the trx is actually i mean i worked there and i know randy the the founder he's a friend of mine i think it's a revolutionary product and i also think it actually makes a ton of sense for professional cyclists because it's a modality you can travel with year round, you can scale how difficult the exercises are quite easily versus something like, I'm going to start deadlifting 500 pounds yeah. this off season. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've, and I've seen people, I've seen professional mountain bikers deadlifting heavyweights like the day before races. Like, what are you doing? Like you yeah. would never, 
you would never suggest that for anyone. It's funny you mentioned TRX. I, it maybe is TRX. It maybe was another brand before them, but Drew Brees, NFL oh, quarterback. Yeah, Drew's an inv- was yeah, an early investor in TRX. Yeah, lifting heavy weights and just started doing TRX, and people thought he was crazy, but obviously yeah. he had a very good career, and, and that worked for him. Yeah, it can work. Uh, you know, so, someone we haven't mentioned in this conversation is Pog. Well. As in, like, has he been deadlifting 600 pounds in the offseason? Well, we haven't talked about him much in the context of the offseason, his That's aspirations good. with doing the double with the oh, zero, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, hold on. Let's wrap this up. Let's right. wrap this okay, up. Okay, okay. Yeah, that. sure. So I will say the Vanderpool, as much as I'm criticizing him, it's been fun to watch. Like, as a consumer, I'm enjoying it. And if he oh, tries yeah. to do the mountain bike and road race at the Olympics, that's also cool. I have a bonus episode where I'm going to talk to an Olympian about why these guys care so much about the Olympics in cycling, which in my opinion is a mistake because it's kind of a crapshoot race. You probably shouldn't skip the Tour de France to focus on a national team race that is a bit of a random result because Alexander Vinokurov could just pop out of nowhere and beat you. Oops, you spent all that time focusing on that one race. But so it's fun. I, I will not dispute that i'm confused by it i just don't think the thought process is there it seems like the back injury gets brought up and then they even forget about it themselves and then never mention it don't mention it for months and then oops the back's a problem okay so let's go to gc wow and then we can kind of tie into today today with this one i love your theory that wow this is all a big you know fake out it's like oh i'm not going for gc at the zero i'm there for stages and then you look at that gc route I'm I'm not a believer in like, oh, it's these are easy routes. This Giro is going to be all about the time trial. People say that every freaking year, and it's always about the climbs, not the time trials. This year, though, it's a pretty easy route. And I, I don't want to say easy because obviously you could have like rolling hills and no high mountains. If you raced it all out for 21 days, it would be very hard. There's not a ton of high mountain passes. And you know what happens in Italy in May? It's quite snowy. You know, it, it snows a lot in the Alps. I don't know if people know this, but it's not all melted by May. Like it's a good chance that the highest mount passes just are not raced. Wout has two or three long time trials. I forget the specific number. I should know that. Builds up a nice little lead and he's a good climber. I mean, people forget he got second at Torino Adriatico. I think that was 2021. He was beating like Garrett Thomas, really good riders, like really good career GC riders. He only got beat by Pogacar. I think he's going for GC. I do think Tade Pogacar will probably will win the Giro over Welt, unfortunately. But yes, as you say, this is crazy. He's doing the, the Giro d'Italia, the Tour de France double. No one's won it since 1998 when Marco Pantani did it. Tom Dumoulin got closer than people think. He got second at the Giro, second at the Tour in 2018. Do you think this is a good idea, Andrew? I mean, this is another thing that I would say is fun. I'm excited for it, but I'm not sure it's a good idea. It's probably not a good idea, and it's part of why I really love Pog as a as a sportsman and a human being, because I don't think he's doing things that are sensible. I think he's doing things that he's passionate about, and I, I think he really loves racing. He has gameness. He's a competitor. He loves to fight, and he believes that he can do this, and I admire that quality in, in human beings and sports people, even if it on its face doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. He looks like someone who has a lot of fun doing his <laughs> job. And I actually don't, I mean, I, I don't know them personally, but looking at like Pidcock, Wout, Vanderpool, there's just something kind of grim at times about yeah Vanderpool uh, specifically kind of always <laughs> yeah. seems like not that happy you know like you are doing you won the world championships in two monuments in the same yeah, season well, that's pretty good no totally i also would say pog just seems to to have the natural build to be the writer he is and he has the level of sustained power as a time trialist that he needs at the weight that he has he's not doing a garrett thomas yeah, or yep. bradley wiggins where I'm, I actually would be walking around at 215, 220, and I'm cutting 50 pounds to retain the power and just like be this this robo machine taking ketones and riding for 12 hours on water. And you look at Wout right now in particular, we didn't talk about this and you know I don't want to body shame Wout. I look at Wout right now, and by the way, it's been very hard for me to look at Wout now that GCM Plus is gone it's extremely difficult to access 
coverage of these races, some watching pirate uploads on YouTube with no commentary. When I can find them from the cyclocross races, um, which I, overall I don't think is is good for the sport <laughs> for the health of the sport that they're Setting not that televised aside. what that's they yeah, are on, yeah, on flow bikes if anyone wants to watch them legally i tried to cancel flow bikes multiple times couldn't do it yeah lo and behold it's helped me because now i can watch all these cross races yeah. but it does cut out quite a bit and it always blames me it's like your wi-fi is too slow it's like well gc i never told me why my wi-fi was too slow flow so what's the deal yeah, there was a class action lawsuit against Flow that they recently lost for their auto renew practices, by the way. And if you were to look at the footage of WoW from this year compared to past years, this is a, a you know, it's a bit old school, but he visibly looks to me like he's probably like five kilos lighter. He's typically carrying more weight at this time of year. And to me, like this is another indication he's going down this road of what we know to be a pretty miserable lifestyle if you're a bigger for a cyclist uh body type trying to go in the direction of gc so that's he's more from the mold of a a garrett thomas bradley wiggins yeah, i thought wow yeah. were he not a cyclist he'd probably be walking around like around 200 pounds of muscle i think he looks like he's a very muscular guy and he's cutting a lot of weight in order to be able to compete is a you know like to be able to climb and go for the GC? Yeah, it reminds me of Tom Boonen. It's these guys would be if they weren't cyclists, they'd be like two hundred pound defenders, probably on soccer teams. You know, just like right. pushing people around. I I I do agree with you. He looks lighter. I think this is part of the uh, GC not GC plan for the Giro. And also, how did he? He needs to win the Tour of Flanders. It's an extremely important race for a Belgian rider. You would say maybe the most important race. How did he lose Flanders last year? He got dropped. He could not keep up on the climbs with Taddy Pogacar. So maybe getting lighter also benefits him at Flanders. A side benefit of that is it keeps him high. And I think this is going to be, and I agree with it. He's going to go into the zero. I'm here for stages. I'm here for stages. Oh, I'm doing well in the time trials. Oh, I'm staying up high in GC. Oh, I'm winning a bunch of stages. Oh, those time bonuses. Oh, wow. If I was going for GC, they'd be helpful. Oh, in the third week, I'm... I'm in the lead, but I'm really not here for GC. I think it's going to be like that the entire time. But if he stays light, that's not going to hurt him in terms of Giro GC. Um, I think you're onto something there. And the the thing on Pagachar is, I guess, doing the Giro is better training than not riding your bike with a broken wrist, is what, which is what he was doing <laughs> last May. So yeah, this can only point. be positive wow. for him. Yeah, no, I hadn't, honestly, I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, it's better preparation than Andy's getting paid broken rest. probably 3 million euros to show up. So there is an argument. Money's nice. Lots of money's very nice. And would I rather be getting paid a bunch of money to go to a training camp? What is, what is essentially a training camp? It's a simulation of a three-week grand tour that I will be racing in a month. And I'm riding really hard. and you know, I did Sepp Kuss, I'm not sure I buy this, but there is a theory floating around. Um, Daniel Freebe from the cycling podcast put it out there that the best way to prepare for a grand tour is to race a grand tour. And Sepp Kuss showed us that by racing every grand tour last year and being stronger in every subsequent grand tour. It's, it's not, it's not impossible that we've just gotten better at managing these guys' fatigue. And someone like Pogacar is so good. He's not going to be, if I, if we did a grand tour, we'd be on the limit every day. We'd be trashed for six months after that, but he's so good. Like he's probably not on the limit like a normal rider is during these races. Yeah, that's true. If that theory were, maybe it's true in the modern era. I'm just thinking if we applied that logic back over the course of recent history that would mean that adam hansen would have been the best gc <laughs> rider people yeah, yeah in the history of the sport right instead he made really cool shoes and was way out of his time with marginal gains with all the aero stuff i mean one other thing before we move on from this uh like what's going on in cyclocross conversation where we started i also honestly really wonder about the psychological impact on Wout and Pidcock of just getting totally dominated, even yeah. if their intent is to go for GC. As a competitor, it's never good to go out there and just completely get your ass kicked by someone who you're neck and neck with in general. So particularly as we head into the spring classics for Wout, 
I mean, he's just Wout has never really performed at the level that uh, as consistently as he would like to at the, you know, the races where like he wants to make his mark and, um, you know, put a few more feathers in his cap as his career progresses with the spring classics relative to Vanderpool. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, this is also probably why they've they haven't I don't think they've totally pulled the plug, but they've scaled back their cross schedules as they've been just crushed by Vanderpool. But also, I mean, especially wow, he knows the pain of being so good at cross and then not where he wants to be a few months later. So maybe he's able to contextualize it. Maybe it's good for him just to get stomped by Vanderpool week after week. And he's gonna he's gonna be hungry when he gets to the classics. I love that in pro sports. He's hungry now. He didn't want to win before, but now he wants to yeah. win. He's decided, but he does need it's people criticize Wout a lot. I think he gets too much criticism. Um, the classic stuff is a he it's, it's undeniable that he's been not what he should be in the spring classics. And maybe this, maybe this is part of a plan where he's, he's going to turn that around. Um, he's seen something he needs to change, but in terms of GC Pickcock, that's the next thing on our list. Tell me why do you think Tom Pickcock is going for the GC at the Tour de France? Is this something he said in an interview or is this like a long-term thing you're, you're thinking about? I feel like they've talked about it quite a bit on the Garrett Thomas podcast. And then I watched the, I think the Matt Stevens interview with him that was published recently on, um, on YouTube, where I also picked up, I mean, I guess I knew Pidcock didn't drink alcohol, which makes a lot of sense. There are no performance benefits to drinking alcohol, and that's just part of his uh, his protocol. He also does not drink caffeine, but he, he attempted to make a latte for Matt Stevens using coconut milk, which I don't recommend. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's pretty focused on moving in the direction of GC. And if, if you watch Unchained, which I know you did, it was pretty clear behind the scenes that um, everything is just kind of a trial run right now because Enios has fallen apart and is completely desperate and has very little chance of performing at Grand Tours in the future. He's their best hope. Obi-Wan. Is he their best hope? Because they, didn't they have a guy get fourth at the tour? Fifth, no, sorry, fifth at the tour this year, Carlos Rodriguez? And I'm looking at their start list. This is pretty interesting, yeah. actually, for the tour. It's Carlos Rodriguez, Garrett Thomas, Tom Pickcock. Three guys that you could say would be going for GC. And a trend, I have a piece coming out on this, hopefully later today on Beyond the Peloton newsletter. Everyone's throwing everything at the tour this year. Boris sending all their top GC riders. UAE is sending all their top GC riders. It looks like Ineos is doing the same. People have realized Jonas is very good. The only way to beat him is throw everything at him and see if it can confuse him and Yumbo. Um, maybe he'll forget who we are if there's five GC riders on our team. One question for you, is Tom Pickock doing the Olympic mountain bike race? I can't imagine he would do the Tour de France to try to win it and then also do the Olympic mountain bike race in Paris. But I'm now looking to see if he's... Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm sure sure he's going to do the the mountain bike race. Yeah. But that's my concern as far as the Pickock GC experiment where I don't think it works as long as he's... You know, if you're racing a separate sport during the road season, it's very hard to focus on uh, on GC. And even if you think about Tadej Pogacar versus Jonas Vindigo, you know, Jonas is very good at the tour every year. People are saying, how is this possible? Well, if you think about, think of what it takes Tadej when he focuses on these one-day races. And I know this is going to sound like nothing to people, but it does add up. You know, you have to taper s- somewhat for a race. Let's say you're going to Liege, best on Liege. You can't train through a race like that. So you have to taper slightly. You have to travel to the race. That's like two days of disrupted training. You have to do the race. You're training. You're probably traveling the next day. So you're not training. Like that adds up if you do four or five one day races versus Jonas, who doesn't do it at all. Like in my opinion, that's a massive advantage for Jonas Vindigo. And if, if Pickcock is doing that during the road season for mountain biking, I just think it makes it hard for him to compete as a GC contender while he's doing that separate schedule. Yeah. And just think about how you feel if, for example, you have to do a midweek business trip, you're headed out to DIA, you know, you do a, you do a quick United commuter flight down to Dallas, you're back, you're back out of Valmont on Wednesday, like do your openers for the cross practice. Are you feeling a hundred percent? Now imagine doing no. Liege best on Liege and you know, they're in the middle of that it? business trip. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it sounds ridiculous of full honesty here. I get, I'm not a professional cyclist. 
and I get stressed about it. Like I have a business trip at the end of the month and I'm like, and I'm going to miss some training days. Can I afford this? Can I be missing these days? Yeah. And I don't have to be ready for the Tour de France. So I can guarantee you these guys are obsessing about missing even the slightest bit of training. And it, and it does add up. So we we kind of covered cycling 2.0 back to 1.0. I do think we have seen the end of riders trying to win everything 12 months out of the year. The funny thing about this is it feels like the men are starting to realize this, but the women already went through this. Remember Marianne Avas, the best cyclist of all right. time, maybe? Um, she was trying to do every discipline, burned out spectacularly. Didn't race for like a year and a half because of it. Same thing with PFP. She was, I believe, world champion in, in multiple disciplines, racing them all at the same time, and then burned out. Couldn't race, and now she's slowly building back up through the different disciplines, but has not returned to the same schedule we had before. I think the evidence is there trying to win 12 months out of the year is a bad idea. So the next thing I want to talk about is Ineos. Um, you know, obviously they have Jim Ratcliffe as the owner. He has a lot of money. It's assumed that they're going to continue this budget. I did hear from Johan Bernil though, that they cut the budget by 10 million, I believe pounds for this coming season, which is a significant cut. It means they're right. probably still in the top three of budgets, but you know, that's a bit that probably took them from like 50 like 52 million pounds down to 40, 42. So it's the signs there's belt tightening there. And then for those who aren't following, Jim Ratcliffe, the owner of Ineos, the company and the cycling team bought Manchester, bought a fourth of the Manchester United Football Club for a lot of money. I believe it was 1.6 million pounds. Um, part of the deal, oddly, is that he's going to take full control of the sporting operation. He brings in Dave Brailsford, the mastermind of British Cycling and Team Sky to run the soccer team and don't ask questions about, wait, what? Why is this guy who's a cycling expert now running the soccer team? And he's known for um, alienating people and, and his major weakness is interpersonal skills. And he's entering a world where interpersonal skills kind of are super important because you have to build relationships with the players and their managers and everyone in their entourage. But it's going to be fine. Trust us. But this is going to take a lot of money from Ratcliffe, not only just the purchase price, he's going to have to be pumping hundreds of millions of pounds into this team probably every year just to keep the, because their facilities are falling apart because the American team, the American company, that, no, sorry, the American family that owns the team has not been investing in it. It's going to take a lot of time and money and focus. Is this kind of the phase? I worry this is like the phasing out of the cycling team. And that would explain why, they're letting really talented riders like Teo Gegenhart go, and they're not recruit. I think they only brought in four total riders this offseason. It was the fewest amount of signings of any team in the World Tour. Where does Pidcock go in 2025? Well, well, this is another. I don't want to step on the toes of uh, of our bonus episode, but someone has a theory that. Red Bull, so I don't know, another news update, but Red Bull bought 51% of the Bora team. Makes a lot of sense if you think about it. It's very nice for Ralph Denk, who gets a, probably a chunk of cash for an assetless company. But so now that Red Bull owns Bora, do they start to consolidate their sponsored riders? Well, Tom Pickock, why have them sponsored on rival teams when he could just bring them home to Bora? I and mean, what do you think about that? I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think we're going to see Quinn Simmons leaving the sport in 2025 <laughs> or 2026 to go. I Honestly, I think he's going to go full schemo. I don't know when the next Winter Olympics are, but I fully anticipate Quinn Simmons leaving professional cycling to be a full-time schemoer, and then I think he's going into politics. He does. I'm just going to drop my <laughs> mic. a little bold, but he does seem I, not I like making predictions, do. Spencer. I think I'm right. I do. Yeah, this is obviously unhinged, but I do think he, he won't have maybe the longest career because it just doesn't seem like he enjoys spending a lot of time in Europe, which is what, I mean, we had what Riley Sheehan was our last episode. It's moving to Europe full time because that's kind of where you need to be for the sport. Do you think, I mean, our... A, do you think this will affect Enios the team? I guess it's a ridiculous question because it's already been affecting Enios the team. They're, like they've, they're a shell of what they were you know, three years ago as the focus has drifted to other sports. Dave Brailsford, I guess, is technically still the GM, but he's not really focused on the cycling team anymore. 
would you think, would you be sad? Would you think it's bad for the sport if they kind of slowly pull out? I get it. You're trying to bring us back on topic, Spencer. I think that, <laughs> I, I do think that this is the beginning of the end. Yeah, I think that this is the end of this dynasty or as, as Don Henley said, this is the end, the end of the innocence. <laughs> exactly. We were so innocent then when we were. No, I really do out. think so. I think that like we've seen peak Enios sky, the plastics are starting to melt. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I think that this is this is the end of their uh their winning streak. I think the dynasty's over, the sports moved on, their marginal gains are now normal, and I feel like they're a step behind their competitors in many different ways. Uh among them budget now and it's beyond that just uh vibe wise or the spirit of camaraderie on the team i just don't think that we're ever going to see them at the level that they've been and then i think they'll withdraw from the sport within the next three years what is telling that garrett thomas is probably still their best gc rider and he's 30 like 37 38 years old and he's one of the og riders on that team like they haven't really been been able to cultivate you know it's like if you try to bring certain plants into a greenhouse they just don't grow like they grow in the wild like they the old growth forests for Ineos have been mostly cleared Garrett Thomas is the only oak left and they can't replicate that type of development that they used to have um, we could speculate for hours why that is but I think I think you're probably correct and then two passion projects of yours our bonus topics Levi Leipheimer announced that his grand fondo is now a race. I'm a little fuzzy on this with like top pros. He's going to save American road cycling, which almost doesn't exist in the U S anymore. Um, and then how does this nest into the gravel? Is this a gravel race? Is it all road race? I'm a little fuzzy on all of it, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I don't, I think that there are some gravel sections at this race and it's, they're going to run it the same way a grand fondo is run. They're just putting the pros at the front, which I believe is generally what happens at all grand fondos uh but levi is positioning this as helping to resuscitate high level professional racing in the united states and you know he says that it's akin to a one-day classic in europe i've ridden uh many different parts of the course where this race takes place and it is a very very demanding course that's for sure so I don't doubt that it's uh, an extreme level of difficulty from a terrain point of view, uh, cumulative altitude point of view. You know, it's taking place on open roads with um, with traffic. There's like light traffic control, uh, but that you know, it's not not quite what we think of when we think of a professional cycling race, unless of course it's a gravel race, where, <laughs> as we know. You just oh cars. Yeah. There's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of a free for all. So I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe this is the new professional road racing. Maybe it'll just be on an open course with vehicular traffic. I mean, and yes, I, I, but yeah, I don't doubt that the course is really hard and I'm trying to look up, um, this rider I'm trying to cite, but we, you know, we, we could ride from my house, Andrew, up to Brainerd Lake and we'd have, you know, 7,000 feet of elevation gain and we could we could race that you and me and, and Jonathan Kaplan and say that's as hard as a pro race but this doesn't make it a pro race <laughs> like there has to be the competition there and it has to have mm. the the stakes of a big race to that I thought there was some like leaps of of logic there it's like yes it's a hard course but will it have the best riders in the world probably not you know will it get strong riders yeah, probably. I don't think you'll have Quinn Simmons coming back from Europe to to race it, but I've generally been kind of blown away at how many good riders, like the quality of riders who are in the US racing gravel, like you know, kind of cobbling together like a gravel slash pro road career. Like this guy Torben Andre Road Reed, the Norwegian who won the Belgian Waffle ride that we did in Kansas. Like this guy's really good, really good rider. One big sugar yeah. the next week. Yeah. And he's, he's based based in the US racing. I guess you wouldn't call it perfect. He wouldn't call him a professional. And this was in the GCN before they tore it down off the website. But 
the GCN had like a Homeland series where they would go around and do documentaries at different cycling hotbeds. And they did one in Boulder. I thought a really interesting conversation with Alex Howes and the interviewer asked him, oh, there's there's fewer pros in Boulder these days. What's that like? And his response was, well, like, maybe not because it might be you don't perceive them as professionals. But Alex was talking about showing up to local races. I mean, like, well, I can beat everybody here. I don't recognize any of these people. And then getting crushed because a lot of them are just as good as, as you know, pros were in the U.S. 10 years ago. They're just not recognized as professional riders like Alexi Vermeule and Keegan Swenson everyone knows about. But yeah. that type of rider is, is really good. And I guess they'll be at this Levi race. And you'd say it's not a pro race because it's on an open road. It's a Grand Fondo. But the, the level is high. I'm generally shocked at the high level of some of these writers, but you know, you can, I don't know, I, there's probably a clever saying, like you can call a something a something, but unless it's not, you can call it whatever you want. It's, it's not a professional race. It's a grand fondo. Sorry, Levi. And you'll have strong riders there, but will it actually affect road racing in the U S probably not. It won't bring it back. Is it nice for the region? Is it nice for Levi's grand fondo? Probably it's going to make it more competitive and people will know about it. I don't think it's going to save road cycling in the U S yeah. Yeah. Probably not. I mean, you know, you could say that the, uh, the Lake Perry Tuesday night informal race <laughs> in Lawrence is a professional race because you, I mean, there were people there who closed the road though. So you actually closed, say it's more professional, road, right? You go over a dam. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can fall the lake. Yeah. What more do you need? Uh, <laughs> I'm the gonna first have to race I ever did. And someone crashed. Yeah. Hundred meters in, right in front of me, and almost went into the lake. I was like, "Oh my god, I hate cycling. This is a dumb yeah. sport." Sounds yeah, like learn sounds like most races. Yeah, I'm gonna have to slide in a minute, but I wanted, I did want to before I go. I wanted to loop back to my Quinn Simmons statement, which I stand by. The reason uh, I believe that that we're gonna see Quinn likely exiting professional cycling, or maybe shifting to a domestic gravel calendar in 2025, 2026. <laughs> he so he has. I I don't think that this is that far <laughs> off base. He has previously talked about. Uh, I believe his father was a professional schemo racer. And he's talked about how he would like to race schemo in the Olympics. I think to do that, he's going to have to have a higher level of specificity for that type of training. Although, you know, I mean, he is a, a world-class endurance athlete. Maybe he can just come off the bench and go win a gold medal in schemo. I don't know how competitive it is. I do get the sense that it is a highly competitive sport. Yeah, I, that's the one thing I, I have no info on. I would assume yeah. Yeah, there's some pretty good schemo riders. And for yeah. those who don't know, we're talking about ski mountaineering, which is kind yeah. of like cross country. You're going up and down mountains. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. You skin up, you skin up the mountain. So you're, you're going up the mountain on your skis and then you're going down to be super reductive. And you have a thing on the bottom of your skis called a skin. You take it off at the top and then you go down. So he's made that statement. And then he also is, has uh, recently talked about you know, directly witnessing the aftermath of the Geno Mater crash. And it had, I mean, he talked about how he considered quitting the sport. He did, of course, continue racing. Also, I think going through that kind of experience, like there's no way that you unsee that or that you get rid of those feelings or the trauma that it's like, you know, he's, he's stated like he had a very high level of trauma to such a degree that he really did consider leaving professional cycling. So I think that combined with, his aspirations in a completely different professional endurance sport. And he does seem to have a love of uh, training in the United States. We've seen him dabble in, dabble in gravel a little bit. He has an American bike sponsor. So I think we could see him transitioning to gravel. Hmm. I mean, I'm looking at his, his very strange year. Started off great, then just doesn't do the Cobble Classics, which you'd think he'd be suited for at 72 kilos does the Ardennes does not do well because you have to be like 57 kilos to do well at those tour Swiss, obviously a bad situation with a rider dying there. And I guess he was, you know, was witness to that, but then he comes back to the U S wins the national championships, like really dominantly, but then goes back to Europe and doesn't, you know, kind of has a disappointing rest of the year. So he definitely does well in the U S I would be, I would be, I frankly would be shocked, but 
You know, he does have Trek as a bike sponsor. I He's only 22 years old. I would find it a little disappointing if he just packed it in. But it is kind of funny how old we perceive him to be. I guess it's because he has a full beard. But there's all these, I don't know if you've been on social media lately, but it's like AJ August, like Remco, but better. Luke Lamparty, like Tom Boonen, but better. Like there's, obviously that's all ridiculous. And they should yeah. not, it's not fair to the riders to say that about them. But there's these like 18, 19 year old American cyclists who are so good. And you wonder, like Quinn Simmons' generation now, like 22, 23, I'm almost even uncomfortable talking about this. I feel like it's unfair, but like Matteo Jorgensen is is really progressed well. Like, is Simmons going to be able to progress at the same level as those guys if he's not committed to being in in Europe all the time? And I know someone who trained with him in the middle of the summer before the tour, and he was in the U.S., which is something riders used to do, like the George Hincapie era like those guys were all training in the u.s as much as they could because they lived in the u.s and they liked it but i don't think you can do that anymore i mean larry warbus says he comes back to the u.s one time because he doesn't want to miss the training days with the travel that he just wants to stay in europe so yeah it could be hard if he doesn't want to live in europe all the time i think it could be really hard especially when he wants to be a schemo gold medalist schemo. yeah i'm curious to see how that plays out maybe the ioc shouldn't have done like 15 uh, consecutive Olympics in an Asian time zone. So we kind of forget when the Olympics are. I can't even remember when the next Winter Olympics are. Yeah. But yeah, if he wants to be a schemo racer professionally, he'll probably not have a long career on the road. Yeah, probably not. Well, Lego, my schemo. I got to bounce, Spencer. So all let's, right, uh, right. let's wrap this out one there up. On the slopes. We'll talk to you later, Andrew. <laughs> what, what's your closing? You've got industries to disrupt, tea times to make. Yeah, I've got uh, skins to put on my schemo skis as well. And, and a All flood right. to prepare for. There's about to be massive flooding oh here God. in Big Coast, Maine again. So strap on your snorkel and get ready. All right, well, thank you for joining us and, and good luck with the flooding. <laughs>